Carcon Carne is sponsored by Sopel Solar, S-O-P-E-L, solar.com. Sopel as in Brent Sopel, former Chicago Blackhawk. He helped us win the Stanley Cup. He is going to help you win cost certainty for the first time ever. Get those panels on your roof. Right now as I'm recording, it's like 75 degrees in Chicago. It's freakishly warm for the end of October, but soon enough, it's going to be cold out. It's going to be snowy. It's going to be miserable. And you're not going to want to put panels on your roof at that point. Get them on now. No money out of pocket. Start saving the second they're installed. Take advantage of the tax credits that exist at the local and federal levels. Find out more. Get a consultation at SopelSolar.com. It's car con carne. Let's eat in the car. It's car con carne. And I'm James Van Alstel in front of Haymarket Pub and Brewery, 737 West Randolph in Chicago. I've done a bunch of episodes here at Haymarket through the years. Uh, lots of reasons. First and foremost, the food's awesome. Also, the beer's awesome, but I can't drink that while I'm recording Carcon Carne. I love the vibe. I love the proximity to everything. It's West Loop, Randolph, and Halstead. Very easy to get to after work, after work, which is what I did. I came straight from work, hence the blazer and button down. When I got ready for work this morning, I thought, well, maybe I should bring a change of clothes. My guest tonight said that he would be dressing casual, but based on who he was, I, I kind of thought, well, maybe casual to him is different from what casual is to me. It's not. I'm overdressed. So between now and when I do the interview, I need to change out of the blazer and the button down, and I'll be asking my friends at Haymarket for, Haymarket for a t-shirt, some swag, that I can change into. I guess it works out for everybody. Works out for Haymarket, for sure. All that said, my guest tonight is running for mayor of the city of Chicago. He is Paul Vallis. And I just want to say up front, because of the nature of what car con carne is, it's me and a guest or guests sitting in a car, close quarters, congenial enough, congenial enough vibe, eating food. What you see may be, may be perceived as an endorsement just because of the way the podcast is formatted. This is not an endorsement. This is an interview. I'll be talking to Paul about his run for mayor. He ran last time. He's running again in February for mayor of the city of Chicago. Not an endorsement. This is an interview that just happens to have food, delicious food from Haymarket. You told me I was overdressed. I was wearing a blazer and a button down. You look fine, man. I, I, well, they made me wear a t-shirt. I well, think this is all part look, of their plan. I think this is great. I look a little more respectable, but still casual. You look you look respectable. It's you look a like, good balance. You look like someone who's running for the mayor of the city yeah. of Chicago. That's what you look like right now. All right, look at that. He is Paul Vallis. He's running for mayor of Chicago. He is the former CEO of Chicago Public Schools, former budget director for the city of Chicago. As a politician, he's run for governor. He's run for lieutenant governor with Pat Quinn. And he ran for mayor in 2019. On February 23rd, Mr. Vallis will again be on the ballot as Mayor Mayor Lori Lightfoot will be running for her second term. It is a typically crowded field with more likely to, to declare. Let's start with let's start with what people are saying about Paul Vallis right now, Paul Vallis. People are questioning whose camp you, you're in, who you're representing. Uh, they're calling you closet Republican. Yeah, I know. Can you believe it? Well, I, let's let's talk about it. I mean, Chicago Reader this summer said Paul Vallis rubs shoulders with the far right. The mayoral candidate spoke at a fundraiser for a group that has promoted transphobic rhetoric. That was that was the big one this summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was an interesting one. Actually, you know, the the conference or or the uh, uh, the event was actually a fundraiser for um, for for Reverend uh, Brooks. Um, center that he was trying to build in his community as you know uh, uh, Reverend Brooks has has been holding out on on the rooftop of his building mm -hmm. for the better part of a couple of years to raise the money needed to build his community center he's been trying trying to fight violence in that community so it was actually a fundraiser that I was invited to and I was invited to participate on a on a uh, uh, a panel to discuss school choice so you know first of all my support for for brooks and his efforts to raise money for the center and the invitation to talk about school choice was something that i did not want to pass out so you know because one of the groups out there uh was a group that was um you know that was a you know that 
you know, that demonized LGBTQ uh, uh, advocates in the community, uh, you know, I kind of got, it was like guilt by association. But the bottom line is, you know, I've, I supported um, marriage equality and when I ran for, for governor in 2001 and put domestic partners in all the city contracts, when I was city butcher director and when I was school chief as early as 1995. So I was about a decade ahead of everybody else. So at the end of the day, it, it's just people not wanting to talk about the issues um, you know, there are some conservative groups that support this idea that poor children should have the right to, to, go to, to receive public support to go to parochial and private schools if their school is failing and if their school is more dangerous. And it's like guilt by association because there are some conservative groups and perhaps conservative groups that you might not want to be affiliated with because of their rhetoric. Somehow that demonizes the school choice issue. So, so, so look for those people who want to criticize uh, advocates for what I think is the unfinished business of the American Civil Rights Movement, and that's the right for families to decide what school is best for their children. Look for them to continue to, to try to divert attention by claiming that advocates for school choice are somehow anti-LGBTQ, all the evidence to the contrary. All right, I want to I stay on the closet Republican track, but first, pizza. All right. Thank you. Two pizzas? Are you kidding me? Delicious Haymarket pizza. We've got a four cheese blend right here. And then. Four cheese blend? Is that what for you? Great, yeah. That's fine. One with pepperoni as well here. These are Detroit style pies. There's some ranch dipping sauce, some chili oil. Detroit style pizzas from Haymarket. They're square cut, they're pan, four cheese, four cheese pepperoni. This is dangerous. This is dangerous. And we're talking like serious, serious mayor stuff too. Yeah, we, all we, I know is I'm glad you're not driving. Uh, as a candidate for mayor of the city of Chicago, <laughs> are you comfortable eating Detroit pizza on camera? That's a fair question. I don't know about Detroit pizza, but you know what? The, hey, it's free. I'll take it. <laughs> now that sounds like Chicago to me. All right, let's let's stay on the closet Republican. The the thought uh, that you're a closet Republican. Most recently, you took a pretty hefty donation from a well-known GOP donor. Yeah. Who, who, who incidentally also gave gave money to three to three Democratic mayors, including um, Mayor Daley and uh, and Rahm Emanuel, and I think he also gave money to uh, um, to Bill Daley when he ran. Uh, so, if you're referring to Mike Kaiser, mm-hmm. Mike Kaiser is is a, a well known supporter of charitable causes, particularly. He's a, law, he's a big supporter of providing financial assistance, raising money to provide scholarships for poor families who are seeking better schools for their kids. And so, but he's been, he's been a, um, a strong supporter of Democratic candidates. So it's, this is just consistent with his behavior, with, with his approach, which is to find the best candidate and support the best candidate regardless of their party affiliations. But I'm a lifelong Democrat. I, you know, I, I went to work for the late great Senate President Phil Rock. I, I worked with very closely with Don Clark Netsch. I staffed her committee. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, if, you know, if, you know, if I was, you know, if uh, Don, no one ever accused Don of being a Republican. Believe me, she was, uh, yeah, as you know, I mean, I, you know, I think um, I was marching in the, um, you know, in the pride parades, um, when they called the parades um, by a different name and, and when it was not politically popular to go. And I'm talking about, I'm talking about 30 years ago or, or even longer. So at the end of the day, it, it's, uh, that's their only shtick. You know, they don't want to debate me on the issue of what it's going to take to make sure that all Chicagoans live in safe and secure communities. They're not going to want to debate me on this issue of providing poor families with education alternatives or not being held hostage in their communities. They're not basically the prisoner, uh, you know, of the quality of their schools being determined by both their income and their zip code. And they don't want to debate me on this like tax and waste cycle that has the city spending $28 billion a year because the mayor actually controls $28 billion in spending for a city population of under 2.8 million, but yet we can't seem to find the means to invest on the south and west side. We can't seem to find a way to, to uh, uh, you know, to to freeze taxes. To uh, you know, we can't avoid the constant increases in taxes and fees and fines. I mean, people don't realize that over the last 
really four years uh, this year's uh, this year included the mayor uh, the mayor's city budget or the mayor controlled school board have raised property taxes 871 million dollars they've been responsible for 871 million dollars in property tax increases and I mean how much more can a city take how much more can businesses take how much more can working families and and how much more can the poor take so at the end of the day, uh, you know, they don't want to talk about public safety. They don't want to talk about quality schools. They don't want to talk about, um, uh, you know, f- financially responsible budgets. They want to talk about whether you're a Republican or whether one of your, you know, fundraisers gave money to Republican candidates. Well, I mean, I think that's a fair question. I, I think Chicago Democrats just want to make sure they're not putting a Trojan horse into office if they elect you in there. I, I think clearing the air is a helpful thing. Yeah, you know, but let me point out, and here I'm eating pizza already. Um, you know, let me point out that it's a nonpartisan election, and you know, I'm getting elected to to represent everybody. You know, I I take a pro, I take a problem solving approach to governing, and that means to identify problems and to find solutions. And you know, whether they're Democratic solutions or Republican solutions, the objective is people need, you know, public safety is a human right. People need to have their human rights res- respected. School choice is a civil right. That civil right needs to be embraced and supported. Um, we have an obligation to make communities affordable. So, so I'm a you know I'm a pragmatist in that I'm looking for solutions to to address the problems that people have clearly identified as being the problems that keep them awake at night that that they struggle to deal with. You know, I mean, look, you know, we have a CTA where it's post COVID now and. There's still 500,000 um, riders down, and 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 the CTA president and the, and the mayor would like to 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 you know try to convince us that somehow this is an aftermath of COVID. Everything is blamed on COVID, as you know. And 500,000 fewer riders. The reason that there are 500,000 fewer riders is because on a per capita basis, they they've had more violent crime than they've ever had in their history. And in fact, I think since in the last 10 years, something like 32 people have been murdered on public transportation. Well, I, I want to get to crime, but it, it seems strange to not say that COVID is responsible. Working from home, new hybrid working, isn't responsible for having an impact on public transportation. Well, it, it's had an in, impact on public transportation, but you know the economy has been reopened for the better part of the year. To, to say that being a half a million riders down, you know, when I, you know, when I go to the red line, when I talk about riders, their big concern is crime. They don't see cops. They have unarmed security, uh, um, minimum wage security, untrained security, basically, you know, walking the platforms or basically at the CTA stations who very often run away when there's a real fight or a threatening situation. Did you know that they're spending a hundred million dollars on private security? And, and I think it's uh, it pays for 300 unarmed, minimum wage, uh, poorly trained private security uh, guards uh, and uh, and 50 dogs, by the way. And think about this: 50 dogs, right? That 100 million dollars could could pay for 666 Chicago police officers. That means those officers, on top of the officers that they already have, you would be able to put officers on at every um, station. Um, uh, you would be able to put officers on every platform and you would be able to have officers both in uniform and undercover riding the trains. Don't think for a second that if you did not have that type of a presence and if the uh, public transportation system became as safe as the airports, that you wouldn't see a significant increase in ridership. So, so uh, you know, those are the issues that I want to discuss. Those are the problems that I want to solve. So they're going to, they don't want to address the problems. They don't want to talk about why we're spending so much on private security. They want to continue to try to claim that things are getting better when we know for a fact things are not. Rising crime, violent crime this this year alone is up 37%. And, and I want to get to crime, but I want to stay on the commuter issue for one moment. And there's a, plenty to talk about with crime. That's what everyone thinks of now when they think of Chicago. I work in the same building that houses the Ogilvy Transportation mm-hmm. Center. Now, pre-pandemic, I remember just a crush of people coming off those platforms, mm-hmm. going onto those platforms. 
you could have a pickup game of football now yeah, you could. outside the Jamba Juice. <laughs> what what would you do as mayor to bring businesses and people back? Because I feel like it, it, it's it's in the rear view. We're living in a, a day of working from home, hybrid working. How do you get businesses and their people to come back downtown? Well, look, certainly... Um, you know, we're we're entering kind of a brave new world. And post-COVID, things will never quite be the same. But, you know, when I was budget director uh, and then uh, later school chief in the 1990s when Daly first got erected, elected, our strategy was how to populate the downtown, how to create almost like a city within a city. I mean, you know, all these factors, Fulton, Mark, I mean, you, you look at the downtown area, I mean... You know, I mean, the downtown population was a fraction for what it was. So it wasn't only about making sure that you had a, a thriving and secure and dynamic downtown, but that you also basically populated downtown so people were living and working uh, and uh, and entertaining themselves and uh, in, in the downtown year round. And, and, and that was our approach. But what's happened, and, and I think you know, it's been primarily due to crime, is, is that uh, it has only it, it it's doubled down on the negative impact caused by COVID, and it's it's delayed the return to to people to visitors. Um, you know, people don't realize how many visitors that the downtown would would uh, would have from the suburbs, let alone tourists coming in to see Millennium Park and things like that. But people have stopped coming downtown, and more and more people have elected not to continue to live and work down town in part because of crime because crime's out of control crime is definitely out of control down i'm down, down. look we just left i mean this place um haymarket was robbed or uh, and or at least there was an attempted robbery look look at what's happening in river north look at what was last weekend there were five kidnappings in wrigley in in wrigley field now they're kidnapping people shaking them down and then releasing them i mean it's it's uh, crime is out of control and 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 so You've, you've got to get a handle on public safety uh, if you're going to revitalize the downtown. And you've got to get a handle on public safety in the neighborhoods if you're going to create conditions in the poorest neighborhoods, if you're going to create conditions to get businesses to, to invest in those communities and to keep and to slow the exodus of middle class families from those communities. Do you realize that over the last, that when I graduated high school uh, 50 years ago, uh, um, 50% of the city was considered to be middle income. Today, 16% is considered to be middle in income. And incidentally, that's pre-COVID. And um, it, it's probably much lower now post-COVID. And if you take out the city workers who are required uh, to uh, the city, the school district, you know, the, the related agencies, city-controlled agency workers who are required to live in the city of Chicago, if you took them out of the equation, the the middle class is probably constitutes less than 10% of the city's population that's devastating that's devastating a city can't grow with a vanishing middle class and there's two primary reasons that the middle class is 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 leaving the first reason is violence. The second reason is the lack of quality schools. Uh, over the last 20 years, the biggest exodus of middle-income families has been black families. Um, uh, in the last 20 years, well over a quarter of a million residents have left the city. Uh, black residents have left the city of Chicago. They are overwhelmingly families with school-age children so and it's due to two reasons it's due to crime and it's due to the absence of quality school choices well I mean, here we are paul can i call you paul i should have asked mm -hmm. you that earlier okay Please here we go. are paul <laughs> we're two older white guys we're sitting in the west loop we're eating pizza that's been handed to us and we're talking about crime in chicago our experience is very different from people of color living in the city people who are trying to bring home groceries on a block that's been overtaken by gangs how do you, or how would you, as mayor, represent those people? How would you, how do you understand that experience? Well, <clears throat> let's talk about policing first, and then we can talk about the other things that need to be done. Um, so let's talk about policing. I'm a firm believer that uh, policing should be community-based, which means the police officers should be pushed down to the local beat. Local commanders should have control of their officers, whether they're detectives and they're they're 
you know the the various citywide units that provide support. I think the best policing is local policing, community-based policing, because um, you you have to make sure that every single police beat is covered. Did you know that some of the most in some of the most violent communities, you'll go a night when maybe half the police beats have a squad car, half the police beats are being uh, covered because of the not only the shortage of officers because they're not filling vacancies, but also uh, their abandonment of the community policing strategy that the interim superintendent Beck had embraced and and superintendents like Terry Hilliard and others had advocated and had pushed for and had implemented years before. Um, you had you had literally local districts being stripped of officers. So like in the 11th district, the most violent district in the city, meaning it's probably the most violent district in the country, there were 108 murders last year. You would, in a single police district, you would have nights when only half the beats were being covered. So what you've got to do is you've got to have beat integrity because when you you have community-based policing where you have cops on the beat and they're there every night and those cops are known to the community and the and and the cops know the community that's that that is the foundation of community policing so you've got to return to the concept of of um, of of beat integrity and um, absolutely critical what you also have to do at the local level is, is you've, you you got to be supported supportive of initiatives like alderman beal in um in the rosen community he's done so much to revitalize the community where i was born and raised um the community where I, I built one of the really uh, elite magnet schools, Gwendolyn Brooks, the old Mendel High School campus in uh, in Roseland. Um, um, you know, he introduced an initiative called, uh, it's, it was the Cop House or Mini Police Station Program. Many of the aldermen would like to have these mini stations located in the strategic areas of the city as a way to enhance law enforcement. Why can't we have that? I mean, why can't we have a larger police presence, permanent presence in the community with police who are dedicated to that community, are known to the community, and who, in, in effect, know the community because it makes for more proactive, more effective uh, com- um, local policing. And and when there is that type of familiarity, that cr- cr- um, corrects a lot of problems. Second thing is there's no strategy in place to protect witnesses and victims. Right now, there's no witness protection program. Wait, wait, wait. It doesn't exist at all? No, it doesn't exist at all. They, so, in other words, if you're going to give testimony, you know, and, uh, you know, and with the early release uh, uh, policies, or, or I should say the, the pretrial release policies of the current uh, state's attorney and, and the judges where they're releasing like three times the number of, ser- of violent felons uh, uh, who who they who are arrested and charged back into the community on like felony bail? I mean, you know, in, in January first, um, uh, they're going to eliminate no cash bail. Well, I mean, whether they eliminate it or not, you you still have a fact that the the the, the vast majority of dangerous felons of serious of violent uh, felons or those who have been arrested for violent felonies. Even individuals who have been who have had uh, who have been subject who have been the subject of multiple felonies, they're being re- released right back into the community. Do you know that it, there have been 86 uh, individuals uh, murdered or or shot or uh, uh, this year alone who were individuals who were released on felony bail? So so um, you know when you have those type of practices. Um, the you know the inability to protect witnesses, the inability to protect victims. Uh, how do you expect the police to have any cooperation? How do you expect uh, you know the police to to get these witnesses to come and testify because they're living in constant terror? So so establishing a universal, comprehensive witness protection program that can protect both witnesses and victims, and and that includes really enacting legislation or for that matter even passing the city ordinance. That basically says that if you threaten or intimidate a witness or even come into contact with a witness, there's there are mandatory sentencing. There are going to be grave consequences. I mean, those are basic things that the city could do to help improve public safety in those neighborhoods. So so you've got to return to community policing and you've got to provide the means to protect witnesses and to protect victims in the process. What you also have to do in these communities is you have to recognize that the, the spike in crime that we've seen since 2019 is in large part due to the fact that we shut our schools down, 
for 15 consecutive months. We literally put 330,000 kids on the street of Chicago for 15 consecutive months, and it had devastating consequences. Do you know that... Did you think that the COVID shutdown was a bad idea? Yes, it was, absolutely, with the schools, because other states did not shut down their schools, and there was no loss in academic performance. Uh, you didn't see huge spikes in youth violence. Uh, the archdiocese kept their schools open. You know, the the NAEP scores, the national test scores just came out. Devastating results from the NAEP scores. The, the academic performance of Chicago public schools on the state tests have plummeted, and they were pretty low before COVID. Before COVID, only one in four students and only one in four black students were meeting or exceeding state standards. Now those numbers are even lower. So it's had devastating consequences. But think of these statistics, right? Since COVID, there have been over 200 uh, school-age youth murdered in the city of Chicago since COVID, including 46 this year. Ponder that for a second. 46 school-age youth murdered. Here's an even more frightening, an equally frightening statistic. I feel like you're trying to scare us. No, I'm, well, I'm, I'm just trying to explain to you because I'm, I'm going to talk about a solution. Um, the, um, uh, you know, I'm trying to identify the problem. If you want to know why spike, uh, why, why crime spiked, and you've got to get at the underlying causes of crime. But if you want to know why they spiked during COVID, was well, because we degraded our police department. We, we didn't fill. Uh, we're like 1,700 officers down from when the mayor took office. We we pulled the cops out of the local districts in these centralized shock and awe units. You know, we pulled you know we pulled police from from uh, local police beats. Uh, so so degrading the police department and basically shutting down the schools for 15 months had a devastating impact. Did you know that that um, University of Chicago Crime Lab did a study last year that said 8% of the arrests for murders, 9% for shootings, 32% for robberies, 47% for carjackings were school-age youth, 17 years and younger. So, uh, the, Devil's advocate, isn't that usually the case? No, it's not. Not okay. at all. It's not at all. But you know why those statistics skyrocketed? It was because schools were closed. So what's the remedy? The remedy is you, you've got 625 school campuses in the city. Why are they closed at 4.30 in the afternoon? Why are they not open on the weekends to the community to offer community-based programs for the kids? Why are they o- closed during the holidays? Why are they only open half the summers? Well, who, and, who pays for that? Oh, the bottom line is the, you know, the schools are spending $30,000 a kid. When I ran the schools in 1990 and, and I came in, when I was budget director, you had almost a thousand murders and over a period of six to seven years, that murder rate was cut by almost 60%. I opened the schools through the dinner hour, opened the schools on the weekends. I opened the schools during the summer. I opened the school. Even when we had uh, snow days, I still kept the school campuses open for kids who were home alone so that they would have some place to go. You know, a lot of times parents can't take a snow day. So there's no reason why the schools can't get into the game and play their role in public safety. And when you say who's going to pay for them, if you open those school campuses and you invite these community groups and community organizations to bring their programs and to bring their grants to that school campus, you can offer an array of programs and you can give young people a safe and secure place to go. So it's just not about restoring community policing, embracing community policing, making sure that there's a cop on every beat, that there's a program to interact uh, with the public, to protect the witnesses and victims. But it's also about opening schools and making schools part of the solution. And right now they're not, they're sitting on the sidelines. They're not even, they're not even taking steps to increase the instructional time to make up for what the students lost academically over the previous 15 months. So there are things, there are problems that that have clear solutions, and the city just needs leadership to bring those solutions about. Let's go back to community policing. How does that solve the problem where you have, again, people of color, people in the LGBTQ community who are scared of police, who don't trust police? I think there's been a fundamental lack of trust based on some pretty awful things. Well, you know, when you look at the consent degree surveys, the interesting thing is, is and, and I looked at this survey that they did last year, the survey basically said that people in the community, the, the overwhelming majority of individuals in the community uh, would not be afraid to come to the, the police officer with a concern, 
uh, you know, bring something to the police officer's attention, interact with the police officer. But almost the same majority felt that there, there wouldn't be any, there wouldn't be any, um, you know, um, benefit from that. Uh, because in essence, the community, it was less about the community being afraid of the police than the community being afraid that the police can't protect them. So I, I think that's a larger issue. And if you have community-based policing and, and you have the proper oversight and accountability, that means you have the right sergeant ratios and, and the training officer ratios per, 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 uh, per new officers. If, if you have that infrastructure in place, then you know, the community is going to get to know that local beat cop and that beat car. And, and, and those officers are going to get to know the community because they're not going to be pulled out of the, their districts, you know, um, repeatedly to go sit in their squad cars with lights flashing downtown or, or perhaps some other area of the city where there's been a spike in crime. So community policing and the proper oversight, the proper training, the proper supervision and, and a program to aggressively protect and support witnesses uh, that includes enhanced penalties for witness intimidation is, would go a long way towards improving the relationship between the police department and, and the community. So I, w- I was on a work trip last month. I was flying back from California, and I was sitting in, in a row next to a couple, probably, I'm guessing, between 55, 65 years old. And they were reading the in-flight magazine, and they were reading it out loud, which was kind of annoying because I didn't have my headphones on. That's mm. not the point. The, the wife was reading an article on the best tourist cities in America, or North America, and Chicago was on the list. And she said, oh, Chicago... I bet the writer hasn't even been to Chicago recently. I think that person would be very surprised by what he sees. I came to learn later they're from Long Grove, and I think they'd be surprised if they actually set foot in Chicago. But how do you... You talked about community policing for addressing the issue of crime. How do you fight that perception? How do you let businesses, people around the world know, hey, Chicago isn't the land of Al Capone and and gangbangers? Well... If you can permit me to swallow for a second. <laughs> I, I'm trying to eat quickly because we have so... The problem with recording at Haymarket, I don't have a big enough car to, to <laughs> hold all this stuff. You did this. You put this pizza on my on my lap here. I did. This is temptation. This, this is your mayoral this challenge is, right I, here. I just asked you for a cup of coffee, not a whole pizza. <laughs> and how can I resist? Look, you can change things right away. Trust me. I mean, things have gotten significantly worse in the last four years. They weren't having these discussions four years ago, five years ago. So at the end of the day, they can get better just as fast as they got worse. I mean, clearly COVID did have an impact, but in many ways, we made things far worse by the way we responded to COVID. You know, I laid out some very simple things that you can do to significantly restore uh, the the police so that they have the resources and the resources and support needed to be effective and I laid out a real simple approach to getting the schools involved in the process too because and uh, that's what I did in Chicago in the 90s when I took responsibility for rebuilding schools in New Orleans and I faced a student population that had been out of school for almost two years those schools were open 35 40 percent longer in terms of uh, the instructional day and the instructional year then was mandated by the state and we were able to keep the kids in safe and secure learning environments where they were provided with the additional education and support services that they would need to, to make up for the loss of learning time. And we also did something known as a work study. So we actually created work study opportunities for high school kids. I mean, if I were, or when I become mayor, I'm going to do universal work study. I'm going to get every city agency and every city department and every contractor who has a contract with the the city, or for that matter, it's uh, developers who are subsidized by the cities and then incentivize businesses to create work study jobs for the kids. And then what I'm going to use is I'm going to use uh, some of that billion dollars in COVID money that's been left, that has not been spent or committed yet, and, and I'm also going to use money uh, uh, by cannibalizing some of the irrelevant electives and courses that are offered by the schools, so that that work study can be paid work study. So I can get, t- so I can get thousands of high school students 
engaged uh, in a work environment, uh, surrounded by working men and women. I mean, wouldn't it be great if the kids, were, while they were also going to high school, were also in work-study jobs that would introduce them to the work world, surround them, surround them with the best role models in the community that's working men and women, and also putting a few bucks in their pocket. I mean, that would make a difference, and all those things can be done. This is not, there are no financial obstacles to doing these things. It's simply a question of priority. It's how you prioritize and, and, and allocating your money in, in, you know, in, in the ways that can have, uh, that can have the, the greatest impact. Staying on the police for one more moment. Watchdogs will tell you that there's not enough transparency coming from CPD. Do you agree with that? Um, you know, there's not transparency coming from the mayor's office because CPD is as transparent as the mayor wants them to be. When I become mayor, CPD will be 100% transparent. We're talking tracking the use of force. They're not, you know, the look, you know, you have the University of Chicago Crime Lab. You have a lot of entities that that working cooperatively with the police department have have more than enough capacity and ability to basically track and you know to monitor the police you know the consent decree the consent decree oversight it's city hall it's city hall that that doesn't release all this police statistics it's city hall that manipulates the police statistics no greater example of that than the homicide rate i mean what what city hall tells you is that they have a record clearance they're clearing a record number of homicide cases without telling you that they're they're counting all the cases they cleared, even cases that might be six, seven, eight years old, and then they're taking that number and they're applying that number against the number of, of murders committed in, in this year, the single year, so they can claim that they're clearing six, 60% of the cases. So they're misleading the public. And then they also go out and include in cleared cases, cases where... Because of a lack of witness or for whatever reason, um, the state's attorney elected not to prosecute. So they're not, they're not giving you numbers about arrests being made. They're giving you numbers uh, of cases being effectively closed, even those where arrests were not made. In fact, this year, or uh, 50% of the um, closed cases did not result in arrests. So this is City Hall manipulating the data because the mayor has like a stranglehold control over City Hall. What I would do with the police department is now that you have, um, now that you, they passed the ordinance creating civ- the uh, civilian oversight of the police department, so you have a, that civilian oversight entity, I would take COPA, existing COPA, civilian uh, board, and, uh, and, and the police board and the, uh, you know, and BIA and the other oversight entities, and I would consolidate them into a single entity that would be staffed by professionals that would have police representation, uh, but also would would be would be governed by an ordinance that would require full full transparency. And I would have that entity partner with with other organizations out there to ensure that there was actual transparency. So the bottom line is these problems emanate from this imperial mayor and it didn't start with Lightfoot I mean she just is continuing a long tradition of the imperial mayor where they have a stranglehold on information they don't give enough information to the city council that you know to make informed decisions about the budget we have we have those uh, legendary cases like the parking meter deal or the uh, Skyway deal where, you know, the city council didn't because have information. Anyone from the area ha- almost they has all know to about laugh, that one. whether it's Megsfield, the parking meters. It- because the mayor's office, it, it, it's like Imperial Rome with a dysfunctional Roman Senate, you know. and the pro- so, so at the end of the day, I mean, you know, all the bad decisions that have adversely impacted the school. So probably over the last 50 years have been the product of executive decisions made by the mayor's office and not ever being seriously challenged by the city council. Let's talk a little bit about previous mayors. I mean, I remember, gosh, in the 90s um, when Daly was running things, the conventional wisdom was, yeah, he's probably crooked, but he's our crook. That was always the kind of the, the, the attitude of the Chicago voter. And with that, I'll ask you, how much corruption exists in City Hall? Well, you know, look, 
I've never had an issue. I've never been called before a grand jury. I've, I've never had like an expose or investigative story. Um, um, when it comes to uh, when it comes to the agencies that I've run, because I had certain standards that I adhere to. Let's just say that you don't have to have corruption in city hall. You know, people say that there's ingrained corruption. There's corruption when you let it happen. You need an executive that's going to set high standards. Um, you know, I mean, we ran the schools without controversy. I was city budget director without controversy. I then went on to become superintendent of schools in Philadelphia when the state took over those schools. And then I built an entire school, rebuilt an entire school system in New Orleans after Katrina. And yet we never had any controversies. We never had any investigations. We, we never had the feds knocking on our door. So, you know, you set a standard by the people you bring in, but you also set a standard by creating an environment in which you have 100% transparency. And that's what you need. You know, there's enough ordinances on the books um, and, and and there's the infrastructure is is in place to make sure that you have proper transparency. The problem is the mayor has veto power because, for example, the mayor can handcuff the inspector general. You saw what she did with Joe Ferguson, you know, um, after ten years, kind of literally forcing him out because she claimed she believes in term limits, and that was her excuse about threatening not to extend him. And it was because he was, you know, he he was. Um, he was aggressive about doing his investigations. There, she is still sitting on reports that he did about the engine at Young uh, controversy, or for that matter, the Hill Coal. You know, the smokestack that uh, that they exploded, that they imploded, that sent environmental contamination throughout the Little Village community. I mean, there that that Inspector General's report has yet to be released so it really the 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 tone is set by the mayor but what i will do when i am uh when i'm mayor is i will move to strengthen uh accountability through ordinances and and perhaps even through a, a city charter I, the city really doesn't have a constitution it needs to have a constitution it needs to have a city charter that's what the yeah, that sounds like a huge lift getting that off the ground. Yeah, yeah, but that's a lift that that's a, that could be a three or four year lift. But what I will do is I will, for example, you know, I'll I'll make I'll move by ordinance to make the inspector general truly independent of the mayor's office, and 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 to to uh, to um, get rid of the ordinance that in effect allows the law department to screen and to sign off the mayor's law department on what this. With the inspector general reports, you know, I'll I'll by ordinance create a truly independent budget office, city council budget office, with the power and the authority and the resources to really provide independent analyses. And and I will move to make the city controller truly independent. And you can do that by ordinance. And if you do that, you're now going to have a free flow of information. You're now going to have much greater transparency. And with transparency comes accountability. And you're now going to equip the, the city council to more closely evaluate and assess uh, what the mayor's proposing and what the city departments are doing, something that they do not have the capacity to do now. Uh, the key for the next mayor is to be willing to almost, to a certain extent, you know, um, create a mechanism uh you know, so that he, he, in the case of myself, so I can be held accountable. So there's people with the information to monitor me and to give second opinions or to opine on the budget or to critique department programs, that there's truly independence. Now, eventually, trying to, trying to enact that or trying to create a city charter to institutionalize that would go a long way towards, towards infusing in the city the type of uh, a structure in place that would assure that there was much more honest government and much greater accountability. Eventually, a city charter can cement that. But but I will move to do that by executive order and by ordinance because I'm not afraid to do that. One of the reasons that I was successful in New Orleans is I radically decentralized the system because I wanted 97% of the money uh, minus um, you know uh, school construction. I wanted that money to to not you know be be you know to be controlled by the central office i wanted that money to flow to the schools so the vast majority of the money would find its way into the classrooms so the school spent that additional money on a longer school day a longer school year providing more academic support 
and, and other supportive services to the students and their families. That's that. That's why the district uh, led the state in enrollment for seven consecutive years. So, so that those are the things that I will do uh, when I'm when I'm mayor. All right. So the election is February twenty third. Last time around, you came in ninth. This time around, Lori Lightfoot is the incumbent, and as I mentioned, it's. It's a crowded field. It's always like a battle royal. I mean, you've got a lot of people. What's different this time, Paul? Well, well you know, well, what's different is the issues. Um, you know, four years ago, the the election was about, uh, you know, um, corruption. And Lori, being a former federal prosecutor, uh, 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 she 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 stood out, you know. And, uh, I, you know, although if you talk to Joe Ferguson, the former inspector general, uh, and others, they think um, they think that that she is 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 probably the most uh, that she's even more secretive uh, uh, than and, and less uh, transparent than Rahm Emanuel and and um, and Mayor Daley. So uh, you know now it's about crime. Now it's about crime, and now it's about the devastating damage done by the schools being closed for 15 months, and, and now it's about the fact that property taxes. Property taxes over the last four years have risen eight hundred and seventy-six million dollars. I mean, so it's it, it's crime, 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 and then it's goals, and then it's basically affordability. So, uh, I believe that that the um, that residents are going to be looking for somebody who has the skills and the track record to tackle those three issues. Also, let me point out that you know, last time there there were like fourteen of us in the race, and and um, you know, I think I raised. A million dollars because there were so many, there were so many different candidates. You had Bill Daly in the race. You had a number of, of very prominent, big time heavy hitters who kind of consumed a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, um, uh, you know, the um, funding, a lot of campaign, uh, financial support. Uh, I've already raised twice the amount of money I had last year, and within the next uh, sixty days, I'll I'll double that amount. So I have the money and the resources to basically I, I think prevail and 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 I believe that uh, that um, you know I have the solutions to address the issue of making sure that every community is safe, making sure that all parents, regardless of their income or zip code, have quality schools. And I, I certainly have the skills to get this budget in order so we can stop the the tax the ever the never ending tax and waste cycle that has characterized our budgets. All right, I'm going to ask you the easiest question of the night, Paul oh, Vellis. okay. What do you love about Chicago? Uh, it's diversity. Uh, it's neighborhoods. Um, you know, it's Chicago's, uh, you know, Chicago is, is uh, almost in many ways a microcosm of the world and its neighborhoods are its strength because they have their own identity. It's just, it, it's that that cultural diversity it's uh, it's the I, I mean it's just it's the city of neighborhoods and and, and I, I think that's what I like most about Chicago um, I also think it's a city of unlimited potential I mean look I mean with global warming and the challenges that we face I mean you know we you know our shores you know our shores are the shores of the the largest body of of clean water of 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 fresh water of then uh unsalted water and and uh, uh you know in the world with the great lakes i mean our geographical location uh is dynamic uh the fact that there are so many areas of the city uh, that have been long neglected that just with the proper investment and the proper prioritizing uh, the proper allocation of resources, uh, you know, it's someone really taking ownership of the need to prioritize redeveloping large areas of the city on the south and west side that have been neglected for decades. I mean, there's the potential there for significant growth, for, uh, significant economic growth, significant growth in the city's population, significant growth, restoring and then growth of the city's middle class. So, I, I, you know, it's it, it's a uh, it's a great city. It's a, a, a dynamic city, uh, and a city with with all the resources needed to be effective. I mean, this is a city. The mayor controls twenty eight billion dollars a year in probably the most perfectly geographically located city in the country, uh, uh, if not the world. Uh, surrounded by fresh water, uh, you know the uh, you, you know the epicenter of transportation and commerce in the nation, 
and and with those type of resources and assets and perhaps one of the most diversified cities in the country with those type of resources and assets how can we go wrong i mean there is no reason why in short order we can't get the city back on track and why we can't get the city and, and why we can't once again become uh, you know really the jewel of the country let alone uh the envy of the world so uh, i'm i'm this is the city that my immigrant um Greek parents came to that they set up shop, they set up homes, they opened their businesses, they educated their children. I mean, it's the city of my grandfather, it's the city of my father, it's the city of my children. So it'll be the city of my grandchildren. So I'm, uh, I just think that um, um, that's what I love about Chicago. That's, you know, my heart bleeds that what the city has had to go through, the you know, the ever-ending cycle of crime, the fact that that we we really regressed when it came to the schools. Uh, you know, having school campuses closed for 15 months, the fact that we continue to just pound working families and and the poor with ever higher regressive property taxes and sales taxes and fines and fees. I mean, it's it's uh, it's really depressing to see those things happen. But those things can easily be reversed, and that's why I'm running for mayor. There it is, Paul Vallis. Thank you for eating pizza and uh, talking okay. to me. I, 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 it's kind of like a reality show. We're going to make you talk about your positions in the city, but you've got to eat a really crunchy <laughs> I know, focaccia good. crust pizza as you do it. I think you passed that test. You, you're it's able to good. do both at the same time. How about you? What's yours? I, I had to move it. I, I had it <laughs> awkwardly sitting on my lap. I didn't know what to do. And So next time you eat pizza, you need to pledge to have some kind of uh, tavern-style party cut. That's the real Chicago pizza, isn't it? You know, I'm, I love pizza, period. I do too. I, and, even bad pizza, I'll eat it. I'll yeah. eat it all. And let's face it. Let's face. Except frozen pizza. I won't eat frozen pizza. My wife loves frozen pizza because her when she was a police officer, her shifts, and of course she works at TSA. So, I mean, she has like the weirdest shifts. Mm -hmm. So she's always eating on the fly. So she's always pulling out a frozen pizza. But she's a genetic marvel, so it doesn't seem to have affected her. But there are so many different pizzas. In Chicago, I though am a deep dish pizza guy. Okay, you know the type where you can like two pieces and you can't have any more. Well, says you. No, no, no. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, and and I'm a crust guy. I love crust. I love great crust. So this is really good crust here. So anyway, but thank you, thank that, you that's, for dinner. That's, that's the important, important question mm -hmm. of the night. That's you know when voters are, are heading to the polls. How does Paul Vallis like his pizza? That's what they're going to be asking themselves. Deep dish. <laughs> but thick crust. Thick crust. The sausage and cheese. That's it. Not, don't mess around with anything else. That's my favorite pizza. All right. Thank you, Mr. Vallis. My pleasure.